The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. It's a dynamic process always, but we've got a thesis where we have valuation support and it's supported by a strong balance sheet. If they keep delivering and the company keeps getting cheaper, i.e. the share price stays the same and the profits keep going up, it becomes a bit of a loaded spring. All right, welcome everyone to another special edition of the Good Investing Podcast. I'm a little bit wary that um, we've had a few special editions of late and they risk not being special, but I do think this is actually special because we've got Andrew and I've got Nathan. Welcome to the Good Investing Podcast. Thank you, Matt. It's Thanks, great Brad. to be back for my second special edition. <laughs> it is special. My name is Matt Nicard. I am the co-founder and CEO of Ethical Partners and I have Nathan Parkin, co-founder and investment director, and I have Andrew Wilson, founding partner of Ethical Partners and portfolio manager. Back by popular demand, very, very good response to the last edition. So we've got you back in the studio. So welcome here in the Ethical Partners studio. Now, this episode is called the Underneath the Radar edition of the Good Investing Podcast. Nathan, I've got to credit you with that name. Well done. Uh, yeah, no problem. But the concept stemmed actually from a lunch that we recently had with a very highly respected market participant who said, and I'll quote here, quote unquote, all you blokes do, spend all day, every day speaking with and analysing companies. It's all you do. It's what you do. Why don't you tell more people about the companies some people haven't actually heard of? You should get out there and talk about it more, quote unquote. Maybe not the exact quote, but it was words to that effect. And we did think um, that was actually pretty astute advice. And I won't name that um, market participant. He knows who he is. Um, so here we are. Um, but first of all, I do have an apology. Now that I've mentioned underneath the radar, many listeners now won't be able to get that 1980s song out of their minds, out of their brains by Underworld, of course. Andrew, you'll probably be too young to remember that. Um, not in 80s song. Nathan, you're definitely not too young to um, I do remember that. Song, clearly. Yeah, look, a, a, a good tune. Um, I think it's fair to say under the radar. It's gone over my head. <laughs> Very good. So, look, the, the, the term underneath the radar in the context of this podcast, in all seriousness, um, points to companies that uh, listeners may never have heard of or companies that um, may have a macro theme seemingly against it um, or maybe a company that on the surface may have its challenges um, but they're all companies owned by ethical partners. And as such, we believe the market's misinterpreting the current outlook for each of those companies. So we're going to talk about six of those today, six under the radar, underneath the radar companies. Um, and in doing so, of course, we're making no recommendations to buy or sell these companies and we're not offering any advice. It's important for people to get their own advice from their financial advisor. But before we get into it, Jen, so I do have a quiz. In the first 30 seconds of the song Underneath the Radar, and actually people can play this at home, <laughs> so maybe they, if they've got the answer, they can write it in the comments section on the podcast and somehow we'll circle back. I don't know if that actually works, but anyway, we will do a quiz here. So in the first 30 seconds of the song Underneath the Radar, there is Morse, there was a Morse code message. What does that Morse code message say? SOS. Good guess. Yeah, absolutely no idea, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, so there's a Morse code at the beginning, and the Morse code um, can be translated as think global, act local. So I thought that was quite good. It's quite appropriate in many ways for what we do here at Ethical Partners and the investment community broadly. Think global, but act local. Um, that's the message. Not quite sure why it was that, but that's a little bit of trivia people can um, roll out the next trivial quiz night they go to. Anyway, no more quizzes. Let's get into it. 
Now, perhaps to start, um, all these companies have, well, they've got one thing in common, we, we own these companies, but secondly, they all pass the investment process here at Ethical Partners and, and therefore are in our investment universe. So I think, Nathan, perhaps now is a good time just to remind listeners of that investment process. And if you could just run through that with us, that'd be great. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm better on uh, investment and investment process and investing than I'm on song. So I'm back in familiar territory here and and pleased with that. I'll give you a very quick recap of our process, uh, which is actually working really well in the current environment because it gets us to look at the fundamentals of companies um, before we make investment decisions. So balance sheet's our first consideration. Now companies uh, with low debt, in our view, are always stronger than those with a lot of gearing um, because they're prepared for unforeseen events. They're not reliant on banks um, and they've got money to fund growth. So we need to see low gearing before we invest. Um, we also need to see companies demonstrate that they can make strong, positive operating cash flow. And that's to ensure that their business model is sustainable and they aren't reliant on outside parties uh, to turn up each day and uh, continue to fund the company from the outside. Um, in 2022, we saw the collapse of many global companies that didn't have operating cash flow, uh, where either the promise of that cash flow was too far out in the future or they were spending $2 for every $1 of sales, so therefore reporting sales but with no profit or cash flow. Um, and the, you know, our view is that the days of those companies in this cycle are over. And if 2022 was a year that cash flow came back into focus, I do think that 2023 is a year where balance sheet comes back into focus. Um, and that will be key to investing. And we're already seeing in markets a nervousness um, from shareholders around balance sheet and gearing. So I think as the availability of credit uh, declines and the cost of money goes up, um, that's going to be a natural occurrence. Uh, we're, we're, we are well prepared for that. Um, we also like to quiz management teams and boards. Uh, we like to get to know the people who run Australian businesses, what their strategies are, what their track records are like, how much risk they like to take. And if you ask the right questions, uh, they'll just tell you. So we, we're very inquisitive. Uh, we're lucky we've got a great team here that's been around for a number of cycles. And so we've seen different management teams running the same Australian companies over different cycles. And that's always interesting to know their point of view on where we're currently at. Uh, and lastly, we focus on a company's sustainability fundamentals. And before we invest, we, we will do an assessment of a company's ESG, which for us includes where the company operates, what it does. We do exclude some activities in our funds, um, its approach to human rights and the environment, and it helps us avoid uh, high risk situations, but also identify growth opportunities. And what we've seen over the past uh, five years or so is that when a company really trips over on an ESG issues, it does take some years to get back um, to its operating cadence. And lastly, the the part of the uh, process we'll get into to later today with the stock examples is the valuation. And so when we invest, we need to see a gap between what we think the company's worth and where it's trading on the market. Very, very clear and and a good way to lead us into these six underneath the radar stocks. And we'll start with you, Andrew. Perhaps um, kick us off with CSR. 
Okay, great. Thanks, Matt. It will do. Um, yeah, so I want to talk about CSR firstly. It's no longer a sugar company, and in essence, it's no longer a building products company, at least just that anyway. It's an undervalued property book with cyclical earnings upside. And just to touch on what Nath was talking about, it's well-run business with a strong balance sheet and net cash position. So look, we just think it's way too simplistic to read headlines about builder collapses and think, oh, sell CSR, which in many ways is how the market treats the stock. A lot of it comes down to the property assets on the balance sheet. And as Nath outlined, we we spend a lot of time understanding the balance sheets, the assets, the cash flow generation of a business and CSR suits our process well. Look, they've done a significant amount of work to improve the property disclosures over the last five years, walking through particularly the 450-odd hectares of uh, valuable land that sits in Western Sydney. A lot of that is um, formerly brick operating assets. There are some gems in this portfolio. Uh, probably most notably is the 170 hectares of saleable land at Badgerys Creek. So it sits right on the new industrial Western Sydney hub. And using CSR's own recent transaction at this site, that land bank alone could be worth approximately a third of the market cap. So there's a lot of upside. And we also believe there's inherent conservatism in how they've disclosed the value of their property book. So one good example of this, if you if you permit me to go back a couple of years, was back in May 2021, when at that time CSR revised upwards the value of that property book in Western Sydney by 50% from 600 million as is to 900. So that worked out to be 2 million bucks a hectare on average. So that was met with some skepticism at the street, big valuation uplift, how does that work? Only three months later, or less than actually, in July of that year, they announced a sale of 12 hectares at Horsley Park for $10 million a hectare or $124 million. So they, a, five, a five times uplift on the rate they just revised upwards on the uh, on the value. Now that land was sold to build data centers on to NextDC amongst others. As an aside, I don't want to get too far off piece, but it's interesting the investment community is very excited about the rivers of gold from AI and from data centers and data security. That $124 million that CSR got gross proceeds to sell 12 hectares of land to build data centers on actually is $7 million more than the entire FY22 cash flow that NextDC reported in that year. So look, we don't own NextDC, but I think it's just a good example of where our process looks to want to own businesses with cash flow generation and good assets supporting it. So the, the property assets provide a baseline in our view for value and our NTA, our, excuse me, our NTA analysis shows value is not far below that $5 mark. But there's a building product cycle in play, and that's what the market focuses on, probably too much in our view, but it does. And right now, we think consensus is effectively sitting and waiting for a precipitous fall in building products EBIT. To put that in context, the FY25 estimate sits 30% below FY23. And to put that in context, to use the same phrase twice, uh, is that would be a two, so excuse me, sorry. Over the last 20 years of cycles, on average, a peak to trough EBIT margin decline for CSR is 230 basis points. The FY25 estimate has a 300 basis point decline that it's based on, which is the equivalent of the largest peak to trough fall in margins over the last two decades. So in summary, we think the FY25 trough building products EBIT is very conservative indeed. And we've established that we think there's value in the property book. So now it's time to think about how can we put all that together and what's the context. So what we've tried to do is a quick exercise to explain how you can factor in the increasing value of property and to assess where value lies. So 
if you bear with me, I'll throw some numbers at you and hopefully I don't put anyone to sleep this early on in the podcast. But what we've tried to do is consider the stub or the, the value that CSR's building products business that the market's subconsciously putting on if you accept the property book value of the day from the enterprise value. So what I'll do is I'll use the, today's numbers as an example and to walk you through it. So on today's value, the enterprise value is $2.3 billion. We're just talking round numbers. The last disclosed value for the property book is 1.5. So you subtract one from the other and you get effectively a stub of $800 million. Let's put aluminium to one side and let's assume that's the value the market, rightly or wrongly, is placing on building products. Now on that FY25 EBIT number, that's roughly four times EBIT. So how does that compare historically to try to think about that value? So we can look at a couple of lessons. Firstly, this, as the value of the property book has increased over time, we note that the share price has troughed incrementally higher each time. So you can look at December 2018, then March 2020, and June 2022 as examples of this. Secondly, at each time on those dates, if you conducted this stub analysis when the share price troughed, the implied EBIT multiple for the building products business was three and a half to four and a half times, which is exactly where we are today. So in short, using this analysis, you can see you are paying the same for building products today on a multiple basis as you were at the bottom of the last three share price cycles. And that is based on a building products consensus estimate, which is factored in the equal largest peak to trough EBIT margin in the last 20 years. Meanwhile, the stock is trading at only a slight premium at our estimate of NTA. So in many ways, CSR is the definition of something that presents asymmetric upside risk. And just finally, one pushback you often get on a cyclical business like this is it's dead money until the cycle turns. But just for context, in the last four years, CSR's end markets have seen housing volumes down 10% versus the decade average. Despite that, CSR have returned equivalent of 7% on average of total capital per annum via ordinary divvies, special dividends, and buybacks. So in fact, you aren't paying to wait, they're paying you or paying us, and which they can do given that strong balance sheet and diversified earnings, which suits our process. So in a, in a nutshell, that's CSR, but maybe I throw to Nate. I'm going to throw you a question oh, first. You mentioned briefly aluminium. How should we think about that um, that that asset there that's um, often loss making, sometimes makes a very good profit? How do you how do you factor that in? Look, it's a complicated question, and it could go on for a lot longer than we have time for in this podcast. Let's give me the simple answer. The, the simple answer is we don't ascribe a significant amount of value to it currently, and that's on the basis of a, of a number of factors. Firstly, the opacity of earnings. Secondly, the significant decarbonisation challenge that asset faces. Um, but then thirdly, there's an offsetting value, which could be the land value that, that that asset sits on. So you put all that together and we think the simplest way to think about it is describing very little value at all in our investment case to, to those factors. Now, that that could well prove conservative, but it's a challenge in many ways for the business. So it, I hope that answers that. Mm, simply. That does. Yeah, I've also got a question. You mentioned that consensus earnings is has quite a sharp downturn already factored in. Is there anything going on in the building industry that means that that may not happen? 
there's there's multiple things. I mean, firstly, there's well, let, let's talk about bottom up and top down. So, I think it's important. One thing I didn't call out for the interest of time is the amount of work that CSR has done in its in its own business to ensure its margins are improved. And the the first one is the consolidation of the bricks industry, which is material. The second one is that the Jiprock industry has consolidated, which they're uh, one of the key players in. The third thing is they've exited a high fixed cost business like glass. And then you could also call out the significant investment they've put into a business like Hebel, which puts them in a privileged position. And then from a, from a macro perspective, it's always difficult to draw a line in the sand and say, this is what's going to go on. But we do think it's important that there is an um, what you could call an underbuild has gone on versus starts. So there is a significant pipeline that could continue to, to go on for much longer than those consensus assessments suggest. Um, and how do I think about that? Well, we think the first half 24 earnings are actually going to grow year on year, which makes it even harder to get to that FY25 number. So I hope that's a few things to answer the question. Yeah, just so much so much pessimism baked in, that's for sure. Exactly. All right, good start. Nathan, Noble Oak Life. All right, Tell yeah. Tell us my, about that. Happy to. My first stock really is, I think, under the radar of most fund managers. Um, the market cap's only $150 million. Uh, but we think it's a high-quality company. Um, and I'll start with the industry. Noble Oak is a, uh, sells life insurance policies. Um, and whilst that's you know, reasonably boring, we think the, we think the uh, outlook and I guess the investment case for this company is not boring. The industry, for context, um, the life insurance industry in Australia is an $18 billion enforced premium market. And approximately $11 billion of that market is contestable or as a company defines it, it's a it's a direct to consumer or through the advice market um, in the way that the product is distributed. The other seven billion is through superannuation accounts, which is not contestable for the company. So Noble Oak operates and and competes in the direct to consumer and through the advice market, but mostly in the direct to consumer market. Um, so the company's got premiums of just under $350 million. So that's about a 3% market share of the contestable market, but it's attracting about four times that share of new flows. So the life insurance industry, um, as I'm sure it won't be a surprise, is not growing really fast, but it doesn't mean that this company can't take share and in fact is taking a significant amount of share and growing uh, its top line quite well. And it's doing that through um, the provision of cheaper premiums versus its competitors and a a direct distribution model that is quite effective. Now, looking back at the company's history, um, before companies come to market, we like, and this company only came to market in uh, late 21, we like to see them having operated for a long time, been profitable before they list, have all the good fundamentals um, in place well before they list and not use the IPO process as some kind of prop um, for the new shareholders. But this company's been around in various forms for about 140 years and it demutualized about 10 years ago into the current corporate structure. And for most of that time, or all of the time before it demutualized, it um, was funded pretty much by the members that owned the business. And so they came to market, um, they came to the ASX for all the right reasons. They came to raise capital for future growth. Um, and the business has a very strong culture, which we like as well, led by Anthony Brown, who we rate really highly. 
Um, so most of the IPO proceeds stayed within the company for future growth, which is not always the case with IPOs, but it's something that you know, that we look for is the money being provided for the benefit of future shareholders rather than those that are just cashing out. Um, turning to our investment process, how does this company fit? Uh, it's got net cash on the balance sheet, which is earmarked for future um, growth of the company. So each time they write a, a life insurance policy, they need to put away some regulatory capital uh, on the balance sheet um, against that. And so they raised enough money at the IPO to grow for about three to four years, and they have been uh, achieving that growth. The premium that they uh, that they write today is about double um, what that was a couple of years ago, and they have $80 million of cash to invest. So um, uh, as opposed to being a, interest rates being a headwind for this company, it's actually a tailwind for earnings, which we like. Uh, it makes strong operating cash flows, but because the business is growing fast, those cash flows do come through um, on a lagged basis, but they are there. And we rate the management team highly. They're long-term thinkers and they're conservative. So they've put a lot of investment into the business for future growth. And that's all been expense. So, you know, they're not capitalizing a, you know, a future, a future cost. They're putting that into the PL today. Um, and, and lastly, just on our process, the, the company's put a good sustainability strategy together since uh, it listed. It's become a pretty good focus. And we think that um, holds them in good stead, especially as they grow to become a more significant business. Now, looking at their revenue, the competitive position and risk, and finally our valuation, um, the top line's helped by the stepped nature of life insurance premium. So that means as inflation goes up, um, the premium that you pay as your life insurance policy also increases with that. So that's a tailwind for revenue. Um, and in this environment, that's that's a very good thing. Um, it's, it's quite helpful in a lot of companies are struggling with uh, inflation and cost. This company is a beneficiary in terms of its top line. Um, and as long as they make conservative assumptions about claims rates in an inflationary environment, that should be a tailwind also for profit growth. Um, or at least not a detriment. So in tougher economic times um, and with the value of mortgages reaching high levels, um, the requirement or need for life insurance also goes up uh, with that. So, you know, people need to have things in place for unforeseen events, um, those big life events. So as things tighten up financially uh, in an economy, um, life insurance is an area that, that can still grow. Um, as for their competitive position, Noble Lake distributes their product through partnerships like the CPA, um, but also direct to consumer. And because they know their consumers and they know their clients well, uh, they do have lapse rates um, that are lower than industry averages, and we expect that to be reasonably persistent going forward. It's difficult for uh, large life insurers who distribute their products through the advice market to compete directly with Noble Oak in the direct market because they might just alienate some of their distribution um, and they're reticent to do that. So Noble Oak has a reasonably clear run um, in terms of its uh, growth with a lower level of competition in the industry. Looking at risk, uh, the company retains about 30% of the risk for its claims and outsources the rest to large global um, reinsurers. Um, and because um, because they know the customers, there's a reasonably or relatively low, lower level of risk in their customer base than the industry. Turning to valuation, uh, we've, a, we've got the company growing at 15% and 13% for the next couple of years. Um, 
the company trades on about 11 times next year's earnings. It's got net cash, strong cash flows, and we just think that price is way too cheap. Um, it doesn't pay a dividend as yet because all the capital is going into growing and and we're okay with that. We think that the, there's a good potential for future dividends. Um, it's got $5 million of franking credits on the balance sheet. We'll be there for future benefit of shareholders. Um, but we're happy that they're using the capital to grow uh, rather than paying us at this point in time. Thanks. I might ask a quick question. You, you mentioned it was a relatively recent float. We don't take many floats at all. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on what was it that drew you to this, you know, in terms of a structure or whether it was insider participation or what they might be doing and what are you, what are you not looking for in an IPO as well? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, we're not looking for a, a giant sell down from the previous owners. So there was a little bit of money taken off the table from the, uh, from the members of that business. Um, but, um, they retained, well, most of the shareholders retained their shares. Uh, and as I said, the, the money stayed, the money from the IPO stayed within the company for future growth. And look, we're, we're, we've benefited in, this, in the sense that the company has used that money for growth. They've doubled the premiums. And, um, you know, we're, we're also looking for a, a conservative management team that's been with the business for, for a long time. And we had that as well. So good fundamentals, a conservative, good management team. Um, and, yeah, I guess a, a strong financial position, and the business has been around for a long time before it floated too. And and why why do you think the market's forgotten this stock? The story is so strong; it's so reasonably priced. Why do you think people are missing it? I think the company's too small. Um, well, well, for some at least, uh, I think there's a there's a perception of of a low level of liquidity. Like you know, if I do the work on the stock, uh, how are we possibly going to get set? I mean, we, we've we've managed to amass around 14% of issued capital without moving the price. I mean, there is liquidity here, but I think in some of these small caps, uh, people perceive that they're not going to be able to get set. So I think for a number of reasons, um, what you know, what I think changes that is if they keep delivering and the company keeps getting cheaper, i.e. the share price stays the same and the profits keep going up, it becomes a bit of a loaded spring in the sense that, you know, you will get a rebound uh, in the share price at some point if they keep delivering. So I think, you know, for management teams that are, are too focused on the share price, that's that's not great sometimes. But I think if they keep delivering, um, these guys are not sh- focused on the share price. They're focused on delivering results and, and the share price should take care of itself. I think you're up next, Matt. I think you're going to talk about uh, Qualitas. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a good segue to Qualitas because this was also a recent IPO. And as Andrew correctly said, we don't buy many, but we uh, at that back end of 2001, we did participate in the Qualitas IPO as well. And as Nathan just said, um, you know, some of the things we look at there is um, our management taking money off the table. And in the case of Qualitas, there wasn't a cent taken off the table and the money raised was for uh, for growth purposes to, to warehouse assets to co-invest with um, new investors and the rationale for that makes total sense and the management team kind of spelt out what was possible with more capital and hence the market did provide it with more capital the timing though as it turned out by pure luck or bad luck wasn't terrific because that was right at the point in late 21 when people were concerned with inflation and it was quite evident that 
it wasn't transitory. It wasn't just going to be there for a year or 18 months. It was going to be more permanent. So the company listed and then uh, quite promptly went below listing price for an extended period of time, uh, despite it holding its own numbers up. That's probably another story altogether. But it was around about the time of, uh, of Noble Oak. Um, and the reasons for the IPO were, uh, were very, very sound. And, and when we're looking at the IPO as well, you know, we're looking at, um, you know, the structure of the IPO, the, the rationale, as I mentioned before, um, and we're looking very, very closely at the management team and we're looking at that in depth. And for this company, we did um, significant DD with our contacts around the market as to the integrity experience and decision making of of Andrew and the team and, and the feedback was, uh, was all very, very good. Probably the main criticism was the fact that they were too cautious at times and they could have grown faster. And, and that's the kind of criticism we actually like um, because we do look for cautious teams, particularly in this part of the market. So, so Qualitas, for those that haven't heard of it, is, is a manager of debt and equity investments in Australian real estate. It's got about $6 billion of committed funds under management. And over the last 15 years, it's invested in and financed assets with a combined value of about $20 billion um, or thereabouts in residential, office, retail, industrial, agriculture, and the build to rent sectors. So it's been around as a company since about 2008. So it's got a reasonably long track record. And when we look at the components of the investment process, we look at balance sheets. So the company's net cash, it does co-invest with uh, some of its funds and some of its mandate clients, but by far the majority of the debt and the equity it manages comes from third-party institutional capital. So it's a manager of that and gets a fee or a series of fees for doing that. From a cash flow perspective, the, the profits are cash-backed, so very high cash conversion. And as I said before, the management team um, is very, very good and really critical. We, we assess this correctly for, for a business like this because the, the team there is essentially making credit risk judgments every day. And as an investment manager, um, as, uh, as ethical partners, it's really impossible for us to see this in action day to day within the company. Um, but what we can assess is, is the integrity and experience and track record of the team. And as Nathan said before, we, we talk to management teams, ask lots and lots of questions, and we get a, a feel for how they look at risk and, and, and make a call um, on that. Um, so Qualitas operates in the area of the market where the, where the big four banks are effectively reducing their exposure. So they're very long, the big four banks in residential mortgages and, and do that as their bread and butter, less so in commercial real estate. The, the total commercial real estate credit market is about $420 billion or thereabouts. And effectively, we've got a Qualitas senior management team coming up against the, the middle management teams of um, of the big four. Um, and, and we think certainly well, we know that the Qualitas can assess the risk better, make more informed and better decisions and, and turn around those approvals quicker as well. Now, now the first pushback um, is always, well, you know, isn't commercial real estate lending too risky? And, and it absolutely can be um, and has shown to be in the, uh, in the early 90s in, in particular. Um, but I think what's really interesting is you, you look at the stock market and it's mainly equity investors and it's um, real estate companies that invest um, their equity and others' equity. And it might sound obvious, but um, equity players actually take on more risk than a debt player because it's the lowest level of um, the lowest slice in the, in the capital deck. Um, so um, 
to look at the debt side of the business and, and manage that properly from a risk perspective. You need to ensure gearing is reasonable. Covenants are in place. Developments have pre-sale coverage. Um, and in many cases, in the Qualitas um, situation in the in the DD that we've done, you'd, he'd have to see the asset decline in value by 30 to 50% for the senior debt not to be repaid. And it's the senior or secured debt um, in the main that Qualitas is involved with, not the, um, the riskier mezzanine type debt slices of the capital stack. The other components that we like um, about Qualitas is the exposure to the build to rent sector. This is a new sector we've written about and talked about a bit and then the capital raised there um, with a gross capital commitment of about $3 billion. Um, it's got minimal exposure to office. Um, funds are structured that there's minimal redemption risk. Um, there's less leverage to asset prices given it's um, many um, debt investments, not necessarily equity. And I think importantly, um, Qualitas also puts every single investment through its ESG screen and has knocked back opportunities in the past for social and or environmental reasons, which we think is a really good way to to manage risk. Um, and we continue to do um, work with Qualitas on the ESG side. They're very, very open um, at looking at things like reconciliation action plans. They're one of the only um, real estate companies that's got ESG factors in the senior management incentives. Um, they're open to um, the ESG components um, from a risk perspective, but also just from a, a values and, and doing the right thing um, perspective as well. Um, so we took the view um, at the IPO in late 21, that this business could double its funds under management within five years. And and it really is on track to to doing that. And that's obviously very important from a top line revenue perspective, but very, very important from a margin expansion perspective. Um, they've set the business up to be institutional grade from day one, and also to uh, therefore manage um, a lot more money than it's uh, managing at the moment. There's been a few global institution institutional players that have invested, such as Ardia, they've done their DD on Qualitas. Interestingly, they um, gave them a very large mandate, but um, on the condition that they were able to buy 10% of the company or an option to buy 10% of the company, which was a strong endorsement in itself. And I've mentioned mainly the debt side of the business because at the moment, the equity side is tough um, because of that risk associated with the value of that equity. I think as we come out of the real estate um, cycle that we're in or series of cycles, you'll start to see that part of the business grow. Um, it makes up about a third at the moment. And we think the company can grow its uh, earnings by greater than 20% in each of the next two years at a, at a reasonable um, level of risk. So we think the prospects um, are quite positive indeed. Can I ask a question? There's a lot of uh, press or we see a lot of press around builders and developers uh, going broke and that that may well put people off buying this business. How, how do they deal with that? What's been their experience through, you know, the long operating history the company's had? No, that is a good question. We get that a lot from our investors and others. Um, a couple of ways to, to comment on that. First of all, what we've seen so far mainly is the construction companies um, going into administration. There's been many of those. And these are businesses, um, some are listed, but most aren't, that run on margins of two to five percent and with the cost escalation that we're that we're seeing um and the supply chain pressures through COVID and so on and so forth they haven't been able to to kind of match off their commitments effectively and 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 many have gone under so at the construction level it's really up to the developer then to find another construction firm and in most cases that has happened albeit with delays so in that case Qualitas isn't directly exposed so they're more 
um, link to the developer. Um, so we haven't seen now developers may also struggle as well. Um, what they do is they usually ensure a decent level of pre-sales on, on residential um, or pre-leasing on other types of assets. Um, they take um, first mortgage over those completed or pre-sold um, units or the actual land or the actual building. Um, they've also got covenants from the individuals involved. So there's a multi-layered approach um, to managing that risk um, and managing that exposure. Um, so far since 2008, there's barely been a dollar, if at all. Andrew Schwartz, if he was sitting here, would probably say we've never never had to write off a dollar. Um, they've had workout situations, I'm sure, but they've usually got a series of backup plans to um, ensure they're made whole, and that's certainly the, the track record they've shown so far. All right, Andrew, I think you're next up with Clean Away. All right, thanks, Matt. Oh, look, I'll, I'll keep it a bit sharper than I did with, uh, with the, the old sugar company, so I'll be a bit quicker. So it's time for some trash talk. I want to, I want to talk about the old humble rubbish bin. It used to be a set of cricket stumps as a kid, but we now see it as a source of alpha for the fund. We've recently initiated a position in waste management company CleanAway. Are you going to work Basball into this or not? I'm not. I'm not because okay. I think by the time this is heard, Basball won't even be discussed. Okay. It'll be hit into oblivion. Uh, <laughs> we, we've recently initiated a position in uh, waste management company CleanAway. And uh, the stock's underperformed actually quite considerably. It had been hit uh, 10% post the recent investor day. And we saw that move as an opportunity to move overweight in the funds. In terms of our process, it's got a solid balance sheet. It's got cash flow generative assets. It's got a renewed management team, which is important, and a strong sustainability credentials, including um, obviously being a beneficiary and a key player in the circular economy. Clean Away, it's got a dominant position in landfill and the collection of waste, has built the business through both organic growth and acquisitions, but it's had its fair share of challenges, particularly in recent years. Now, they've ranged from staffing to plant fires to high-profile management change to a cultural shift and a renewed focus on safety. And it's also been weighed upon by being as a, a perceived loser, in inverted commas, from inflation. So what I mean by that is over the last three financial years, costs are up for the business 31% versus revenue up 23%. So it suffered from the dreaded negative jaws that the market doesn't like to see. But we do think the worst of these inflationary pressures are behind the business. And you can see with that with things like availability of labor, cost of labor, and also diesel. So it's very important. But if you just take a step back to think about the journey and where clean away could go, it's worth thinking about waste management globally. And, that, and the journey that's in. So it's effectively, it's gone from a simple waste disposal industry and storage to moving to monetizing waste streams and energy sources. And over that journey, what you've found is collections become more technical. Customers have become more demanding, wanted more transparency, more to be recycled. And the barriers to entry have risen materially for all players. So you've seen an investment in assets and the players who are there who are integrated have benefited. And what we can we can look to is Europe. So Europe's well ahead of its waste management transition compared to Australia. And as an example, if you look at Veolia in the French multinational waste business and water management company, as a as an example for CleanAway, so they've increased their recycling, they've looked at energy to waste, and they've slowly transitioned away from landfill at the right pace. 
And the journey from 2014 to 2022 saw Veolia increase its return on capital from 5.5% to 9%. Now, over that time, the market rewarded its shareholders with the share price up almost threefold. So you see increased complexity of the industry combined with capital investment leads to higher returns and it led to shareholder gains. And we think there's a similar opportunity there in Australia for CleanAway to increase its return on capital and enjoy the same tailwinds. So we forecast for CleanAway's ROIC to improve from 4.5% in 22 to 7% in 26. They uh, recently at the Investor Day reiterated the FY23 guidance and we anticipate FY26 EBIT growth numbers to be put out in August, which should confirm our thesis. We think management are focused on operational improvements to put the company on a more sustainable footing in, in every way. Um, particularly after the previous management team, you could say ran the business for financial targets to hit hit those financial numbers. We believe the company has broken the back of the changes and you can look at things like operational metrics, staff retention metrics over the last two updates as examples of that. And we think the stock is attractive, excuse me, we think the stock is attractively valued, trading on 10 times EBITDA versus a peer set at more like 13 times. And there's similar transactions that have gone in the industry like Waste Manager in New Zealand, which sold at 12 and a half times. So you've got a strong balance sheet, you've got a good earnings profile with growth, uh, you've got a valuation appeal, as I said, renewed management team, and we've discussed the sustainability of credentials. So we see that as a good opportunity. So I hope that was a bit briefer. It was good. It was, it was brief but high quality. Just one quick question on Veolia. That, that was a really interesting comparison. I hadn't heard that. So that's um, news for me as well. Do, do, you think, do you think the management team's behind that kind of transition? How, how far how far is their thinking gone, do you think, in going down that path? Oh, look, I think the journey is return on capital. So the the management team seems return focused, and that 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 was came through. They they seem very disciplined on the way they're going to spend capital, and that obviously leads into the amount the money they want to generate from that each incremental dollar. We think that we think, as I said, that came through at the investor day. You know, there's a lot of different ways they can spend their capital. There's a concern in the market that they they're not going to be disciplined because maybe that's always a risk with a business that has a strong balance sheet and has assets. But we see that very much so. Yeah. I've got a simple question for you. So we do our homework, we we put the stock through our process, we look at the ESG, we've got a view on returns, um, and then we buy a position. What what do we do if the stock keeps going down? Look, it's it's a dynamic process always, but we've got a thesis where we have valuation support and it's supported by a strong balance sheet. If nothing's changed with our thesis and the valuation becomes more attractive, we buy more stock in, in a simple terms. That's what I thought you'd say. <laughs> Tick. And on that note, I'm going to find a really difficult question for you, Nath, on ASX once you're finished. <laughs> All right, good. I uh, look forward to that. So uh, my next stock is not, it's not exactly under the radar in terms of market cap or profile. In fact, it's its featured pretty heavily in the press in recent times for all the, all the wrong reasons. Um, but I don't think it's on the radar of many professional fund managers at the moment. It's in the doldrums, and when we see a good business pass through tough times, it's always it's always worth a look. So the company is obviously the operator of the Australian Securities Exchange, and it has um, had some high profile and technology and regulatory issues over the last year. It's a top ten exchange globally, and it operates the largest interest rate derivatives market in the Asia Pacific. And up until FY22, it had 10 years of consecutive revenue growth. So the business usually sits in an effectively unassailable position 
in it in what it does and had a, it had a good reputation up until recently. Um, in our view, it's a near monopoly position. And so for all of those reasons, it, for most of the time, it trades on a huge premium to the, to the market to reflect that status. Now, we didn't, we didn't have a position and we don't usually have a position in stocks like this because of the high PE, which is way too rich for our style. Um, but today, the price has actually come down a lot given all of that context. So to start off with a bit of history around the technology issues, um, this, the, the ASX for many years was embarking on a much talked about replacement for its core technology chess system. And the management, uh, the prior management, I should say, had become pretty enamored with new concepts like blockchain and other embryonic potential technology solutions. In mid-22, the business got a new CEO and a new CFO who swiftly commissioned a report on the chess replacement system um, and concluded pretty quickly that it was not going to be fit for purpose. It was 63% complete at the time. So they wrote the whole thing off, $250 million or around 80% of the company's balance sheet position for software. Are in, they're in the process now of rebuilding the plans from the ground up and pretty much have copped a pasting from regulators, government, and market participants alike. Through 22, the stock had already been under pressure from a share price point of view as the interest rate cycle um, came through and valuations came down. So it used to trade on a 37 times PE at the back end of 2021, and it fell from $96 to $72 um, as rates moved, but then another 14% recently to $62 as the market digested the news around chess and an expense blowout. Uh, but we like the decisiveness shown here by management. Um, they didn't waste any time. And what is a painful period for the company now um, is better than carrying on a losing project for one minute longer than when you realize that. So turning to our process, ASX is a capital intensive business, which means that not many can come in as new competitors, uh, but it's also not in need of any additional capital either. It's got $1.2 billion of net cash on balance sheet, which is the company's cash, which means it's again a net beneficiary of higher interest rates from that point of view. Um, and the company's had the same share count for most of the last decade. That is no dilution from share issues at a discount to fund growth or top up the balance sheet. And people forget that often. Um, you know, if you look at the share count of a company like Commonwealth Bank over the long term, so the last 20 years versus the share count of other major banks, it does make a huge um, compounding difference over the long term. ASX makes very strong cash flows, which um, until now have been used to fund dividend of uh, the payout ratio of 90%. Now that's going to 80 to 90% as they invest um, writing the ship from these technology issues. Um, and we like the approach shown by the new management team early on in their tenure. And the boards has had, had some renewal as well, which we like. Um, the company is improving its sustainability strategy. It's not where we'd like it to be yet, um, but they do have climate targets, net zero, and a focus on the TCFD framework. Um, but we are talking to them about further improvements that they can make. We think they, you know, as a as a market operator, they can set a sort of good example for other companies. 
and it's got well-diversified revenue streams with four pretty evenly balanced divisions. Um, listings going through a, a low point um, as the number of IPOs is down. The cash market's got steady growth over time. Derivatives is also going through a low point and the data and technical and clearing business has been a slow, sort of a slow grower over, over many years. Just around revenue, resilience and, and valuation next, uh, the company's got close to 70% operating EBIT margins, which have been pretty stable over the past five years, which means it's pretty resilient to changes in revenue and expenses. And as example of that, in the first half 23 result, uh, revenue was flat year on year, expenses were up seven, but underlying NPAT was flat, which means that it can pretty much absorb a lot of pain before shareholders have to pay the price. And over the last five years, um, the company has been spending up big. And in our view, there's been you know a lack of discipline by the previous management team. Um, CapEx has roughly doubled over that time. And in 2022, the company effectively wrote that off and started again. Full-time staff have increased 25% over that period of time as well. And expenses as a whole increased 45% with revenue only up 24% over the same time. So expenses growing faster than revenue, but profits were still growing at 19%, just highlighting the huge resilience of a, of a business like that, even if you grow expenses faster than, than revenue. Um, you get about as much data as you can possibly um, you know, know on the operations of the company on a monthly basis. Um, which generally means the instance of surprise with this company is low, which has helped the company trade on a big multiple in the past. Um, and, you know, the, the 2022 chess write-down was probably the largest surprise that the market has seen in this company for the last 10 years. So the key question we have on valuation and the future position of the company, can the exchange maintain its business model and competitive position in the current state and will the current season pass and they'll come out the other side of that in the next few years we think they can so at 23 times pe we think that represents a good value good value for shareholders uh, or for new shareholders at least um, and what we really focus on here is that from that point there's really limited downside now plenty of things can go right from here but it doesn't feel like any of the things that could go right are being thought about by market investors at, at this time. So for all of those reasons, um, we think the company can come out the other side of its current uh, its current state um, and we've taken a position in stock in recent times. Great summary. As, a, as an investor, you don't often get access to buy monopoly stocks. How do you factor that in or think about that uh, qualitatively or quantitatively in the process? Uh in terms of the opportunity, I mean, they, they, these companies don't usually trade at a at a price that's attractive to us because, bec you know, because of solidity of the the I guess the business and the structure around those businesses, um, people are prepared to pay a very high price until something goes wrong, and then you know when something goes wrong with with such a strong business that is so resilient over time, um, and there's no real competitor there to to kind of eat the company's lunch. Um, when things go wrong and there can be short-term issues and maybe they turn into medium-term issues, but certainly when the price comes down as far as it has, they're always worth a look. I think Matt's up next uh, with Eureka Group. 
Yes, so this is the, the final uh, underneath the radar stock. So Eureka Group Holdings, uh, many probably haven't heard of this name. Um, it provides, or the company provides, affordable seniors rental accommodation um, around Australia. So it manages 2,700 units in 47 villages down the eastern seaboard uh, and also in South Australia. So greater than 95% of the rental income here is underpinned by the government pension and rent assistance. So so this is real Australia uh, in many rural areas, um, providing accommodation for people to live in day to day and uh, Eureka managed that accommodation. Now, it's not aged care. Um, the residents live independently, but importantly, they're, they're part of a community and they like the facilities, the safety of living in a managed village, and in some locations, the uh, meals are also provided. So, so looking at Eureka, um, the, the company recently raised equity for acquisitions and developments. Um, so the balance sheet is strong with debt to total assets of about 33%. So it's the lowest, lower end of the company's target range. The business is extremely cash generative, um, a reasonably straightforward um, P&L once property revaluations are stripped out um, and easy to compare cash collected or operating profit with reported profit. That There has been some non-underlying items in the last few halves. We expect those to reduce in the coming year. Um, and some of those are a hangover from a few years ago when the business wasn't managed well. Um, a new chair and a new board and CEO um, has been put in place over the last few years, and that's seen the business cleaned up considerably with non-core assets sold and, and a better operating procedures um, put in place. We've gone and visited many of the assets, and, and it's really clear to us that the management team genuinely cares about the welfare of the residents, and that's a, an important consideration that we look at as a part of the investment process. Um, they're creating what we see as genuine communities and good connections amongst residents. And you know, many of the assets have community rooms, Wi-Fi, solar, um, to keep electricity bills down, provision of meals and other services. And they are continuing to further develop their integrated ESG plan. This is an example of a company who's really happy to be engaged with by ethical partners um, it's a company that we do think does the right thing, but is in you know, part way through documenting that and, and putting those formal procedures in place. And we like being a part of that type of discussion. We think we can help with best practice um, in those areas. Bottom line, though, we fundamentally believe that the assets are mispriced and the cash flows from those assets are of a higher quality than almost any company that we cover. So this is week-to-week -week rentals being paid across two to 3,000 tenants, um, mainly paid from, from the government pension. So great diversity of income, great surety of income. And then income is growing at around CPI as well as the pension gets adjusted upwards in, in the current environment. So if you look at the broader real estate market, and this is not an institutionalized asset class yet, um, this all, I guess is the original build to rent, um, but not the shiny tall towers in the CBDs and um, metropolitan areas. You know, in the current real estate market, there's a great debate around whether a 4.5% cap rate office block might blow out to 55 or 6.5%. There's a lot of discussions around that, or a big shopping centre, should it be 5 or 55 or 6 When you look at Eureka's assets, they're on a weighted average cap rate of 9.35%. And we, we just simply think that this is the wrong price for these assets when comparing them to 
other asset classes, commercial property, or even simply to individual residential landlords who are used to generating a 3% yield or cap rate, if you use those terms interchangeably just for this um, exercise, or maybe in rural areas, you can get a 5% return or thereabouts, depending on where you are in in um, rural New South Wales. Um, these assets are on a cap rate of 9.35%. So there's a mispricing there. They're professionally run. And we think over time that mispricing, as it always does, um, will resolve itself. That The key challenge for the company is to um, get scale. So it does cost money to, to run the platform. Um, so the more scale you get, the better margins you get. Um, so they're in the process of adding units and they can do this via acquisitions um, or via development. So I think the outlook is is pretty promising. It's actually on a cycle that's different to other parts of the real estate cycle. And as, as I said before, the uh, the cash flows are very, very certain. So yeah, prospects are, are pretty promising for this um, this small cap. I've got a question for you. Do you think that um, players will come along to consolidate this part of the market or add it to other property assets that, that might complement other things? I think they will over time. The, the, the challenge uh, at the moment is just ensuring there's enough critical mass. So the ticket sizes are reasonably small. So you might buy a village for five, ten, fifteen million dollars. So uh, it does take time to bring those together to make them a kind of a marketable parcel, as it were. Um, but that rental income is is very, very valuable. And when you look at broader property companies that do development. Um, as well as collect rents, they're always after an appropriate balance because the market will pay a certain multiple for development earnings. It's usually low because they're less repeatable and they're more difficult to achieve through cycles. They pay a high multiple for rental income because um, particularly in this um, particular case, um, the rent is paid in good times and in bad because people need somewhere to live and these aren't um, high-priced apartments. So there is a great value (coughs) attached to um, the rental cash flows, and um, over time that will be worth that will be worth something significant to someone, um, particularly a company that wants to boost its development earnings. Um, and uh, look, we, we, we may be seeing something like that play out across the real estate market as um, as things become a bit um, you know dislocated and so on. All right, the nods here tell me that um, no more questions, and uh, we've got no more stocks either. So that's uh, that's our six stocks um, underneath the radar stocks. So CSR, Noble Oak, Life, Qualitas, Cleanaway, ASX, and Eureka. We would love the feedback of listeners. This is a good format or not? Let us know, and we could repeat it uh, periodically. But there's are six really interesting companies. Um, some would say underneath the radar, and appreciate everyone's time in participating. Andrew, Nathan, thank you, listeners, for uh, for tuning into the Good Investing Podcast. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au. The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision.